0: Amen and amen. What a wonderful morning of worship already through so many various different ways. And we're certainly thankful that you're here to be with that and be a part of that as our family of God. And if you would at this point, though, turn to Jonah chapter four, as we continue with our sermon series, Repentance for Revival and understanding the need of if we desire to see repentance, or sorry, if we desire to see revival, if we desire to see God move and for us to focus on Him and for others to be awakened, then it starts with repentance in our own hearts. It starts with us understanding our own shortcomings and, and asking the Lord to, to change our hearts. As you're turning to chapter 4, before we get too far, though, I, I want to just give a, a quick word as a pastor we are finishing up Jonah 4, and Jonah, Jonah is, a, is a wonderful book, um, but Jonah, compared to what we're going to get into, is pretty tame. Um, and the next several books that we look at, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, are eye-opening, and they deal with topics, and they deal with issues that are hard for adults to grasp and hard for adults to read and and hear. Um, And so as your pastor, this is a word to parents. Please, please go get the reading and read through what we're going to be talking about the week before so that you may best decide how to minister to your child's heart because there's going to be some hard things. Now, there's some glorious things. We're going to talk about the prophecy of Jesus in Bethlehem, and there are there is a word of hope, but there is also a word of strong warning, and there are prophecies that deal with things that make all of us uncomfortable. So please read ahead. Please uh, look through that and decide and pray through, how is my child going to handle this? How are they going to accept it? Um, and maybe it needs to be that uh, that. For a couple Sundays, they need to be in children's church. That's perfectly fine. Um, Maybe you just need to prepare them and have some good discussions with them. Maybe it is time for you to invest in a really good pair of earphones, okay? Um, And so as your pastor, I will try to make sure on the weeks that are going to be especially difficult to give you a heads up. Um, You will notice next week uh, we are on Micah 1. Um, And I'm excited for our Sunday school classes to do that. I am going to do Micah 1 and Micah 2 the Sunday after that, um, because next week we have 4-H guests with us. And this is not a passage that we need to give to 4-H guests. (laughs) Um, And so Sunday schools, you're still on Micah 1, do all of Micah 1, do Micah 2 the next week. I'm going to do Micah 1 and Micah 2 the week after, um, as we have some guests coming in next week. But I just want to, as your pastor, just give you a heads up on that. Um, especially for our parents that are in the room because we love having our kids in here and we love being a family together, but there are times that common sense and wisdom need need to come into it as well. All right, hopefully by now you found Jonah chapter four though. So if you would please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Jonah chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said... For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and perished in a night. And I should not pit, not and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand persons, who did not do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love and for your patience with us. We thank you for your love and your patience and your grace to so many of our loved ones. Father, I pray that as we look at Jonah for that you would use it to explore our own hearts to see whether we want that for others. Lord, that you would use it to challenge us, to encourage us, to convict us. That we would find that heart of repentance that leads to revival. We pray this in the beautiful name, the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. When we started this sermon series several weeks ago, many of us had probably, most of you had probably heard of Jonah, but my guess is is that for most of us, chapter 4 is kind of the forgotten chapter. We make much of uh, in Sunday's children's Sunday school and in children's ministries and in books and even as adults when we talk about this this prophet, we make much of him being swallowed by a whale or a great fish or whatever you would like that beast to be or whatever you think it is. We make much of that. We even make much of him finding repentance inside the beast and being spit out onto dry land and... Then going to Nineveh and preaching this this word and the people repenting. We make much of that. That's an exciting thing. And really, we would be just uh, peachy keen if that's where the book ended. If it was just, man, this great story of this guy disobeying and then God disciplining him, him him repenting, and then God doing this great act of revival in Nineveh, we would be happy if it ended there. But it doesn't. There's chapter 4. And I don't know about you and your reading this week, but chapter 4 has not been all that pleasant for me. And so I get to share it with you. It's tough. It's hard. It makes us ask some difficult questions about who we are and how we represent God. Just as Jonah was being asked some difficult questions about his own heart. To catch you up, if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, when chapter 1 we see this prophet Jonah and God speaking to him and saying, go to Nineveh and declare there the message that I will give you. Jonah, having no desire to go to Nineveh, no love for these people as we will discover here in just a moment, runs the other way, a ridiculous plan to try to get away from God. And what he finds instead is that God sends discipline his way in the form of a storm. Jonah eventually finds himself thrown overboard in the midst of the storm and swallowed by a great beast. Whether it's a whale or a great fish, we're not really concerned with this morning, but he gets swallowed. He spends the better part of three days and three nights inside of this great beast, and eventually he repents. He realizes the error of his ways, and he says, I'm not going to go that any way anymore. I'm going to follow God. And so at that point, the fish spits him out on the dry land, and Jonah hears again from God, go to Nineveh and say the message that I give you. He does that. Last week we looked at chapter 3. He goes to Nineveh, that great city. He declares a word of warning and a word of repentance, and also I would argue a word of hope. And Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, repent. They agree. We've been going the wrong direction, and that, that direction leads to, distract, to destruction. We don't want to go that anyway, that way anymore. And then we see in verse 10 the culmination of what happens. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's pretty remarkable an amazing thing when God speaks a word and people believe God and they turn from the direction they were going and they turn to follow him. That's a remarkable thing. It's a thing to be celebrated when we have people come and they say, I have given my life to Christ. He has saved me. The response of the church predictably and rightfully so is celebration. It's hand clapping and it's excitement and we, we are so thrilled for that individual That's why chapter 4 is a little heartbreaking. Look at the response of Jonah. It says that God does not do what he had intended to do because of the repentance of Nineveh. And Jonah's response is this. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah saw it. your, Your translation may say that Jonah sees it as evil. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord saying, Lord, is this not what I said? When I was yet in my country. Jonah's reaction to people coming closer to God. Is not excitement. It's not to be thrilled. It's not to be thankful. Jonah's reaction to God's grace is anger. And not just a little bit of anger. Not just a little bit of frustration. It is a burning rage inside of him. Why is Jonah so angry? Why is he so angry? He's angry because he feels that these people are undeserving. We see it here in, in this chapter 4. We, we actually touched on it in chapter 1 when we we're looking there as well. It says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster. You go down a little bit farther to verse 5. Jonah went out in the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. You don't have to read between the lines very hard to see that what Jonah desired for Nineveh and for the people of Assyria was destruction. What he desired was for them to be wiped off the face of the earth. He saw them as nothing more than the enemy who worshipped a foreign God who lived differently than him, who acted differently than him, that had been a people of war, that had destroyed homes, that had destroyed cities, that had destroyed families, and he wanted nothing more than them to be gone. They did not deserve, in his estimation, the grace of God. never mind the grace that had been shown him. Not only did he see them as undeserving, he saw this as unfair. He saw it as unfair. He said, the idea here, Lord, we, we have been loyal. We're your people. Where is our repentance? Where is our grace? Where is our blessing? We're the ones that have been faithful. Not these Ninevites. They're, they're warmongers. They're destroyers. They're bloodthirsty. They're they're the villain. We're the ones that have been faithful, which wasn't entirely true either. It reminds us very much of the, the displeasure of the older son in the story of the prodigal. You'll remember Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story. And in that story, there is a young son, a second son, who comes to his father and says, I want all my inheritance now. And he takes his inheritance and he blows it. Like he is a party animal and he wastes it all. And he comes to the point where he's in with the pigs, eating the same thing that the pigs are. And he comes to his senses and says, wait a minute, I could just go home and it would be better there. And so he gets up, and he goes home, and his father greets him, and and he, he makes sure that he gets clean clothes, and he welcomes him back into the family, and he throws this huge party because the lost has come home. This one that had wandered away is now back, and there's a huge celebration except for one, and it is the older son, and the older son stands out in the yard throwing a pity party for himself. And when the dad comes out and says, what are you doing out here? The party's inside. He says, I'm the one that has been faithful. I'm the one that has done the right thing. I'm the one that has done all the chores. I'm the one that stayed put when I was supposed to. And now you're throwing a party for him? Really, dad? This is not fair. And the dad looks at him and says, you're right. But everything you see is yours. And I thought he was dead. And now he's back. It is easy for us at times too to say, this is unfair. In the midst of life, this is unfair. But what we forget, what we forget is we do not want fairness. We do not want fairness. For God to be fair would not be pretty. It's not just that these people are undeserving, though. It's not just that all of this seems unfair. The Bible says that Jonah saw this as an evil thing. He saw this as unjust. It was unjust. In Jonah's mind, what he was watching was the equivalent of a judge looking at a convicted murderer and saying, Get out of here. You're free. Go home. In Jonah's mind, that was the the equation that he was drawing. That God is not just being unfair, but that God was being unjust in granting repentance. That somehow in all of this, that God was in the wrong by allowing these people to live. God hears Jonah's prayer. By the way, there's a whole nother sermon here on how Jonah, how angry Jonah is. And yet his response is still to pray. Whole nother sermon right there. But Jonah prays this prayer out of his anger and God responds. Now, a couple things. One thing I want you to notice before we go any further. Jonah, God, Jonah's prayer is a prayer out of anger. God's answer in return is one of grace in itself. Remember, Jonah has already ran away. We've already gone through this cycle with Jonah. He's already been swallowed by a whale. He's already gone through repentance. He's already been spit up on dry land. And yet, here we are again with Jonah throwing a fit. And God's response is, kindness. Let's see if we can figure this out, Jonah. And so, God uses a plant, of all things, to help Jonah to maybe grasp God's perspective in all of this. And there's some correlations that we are to draw as the reader from the plant to Nineveh. Now, there are some things that we are also to contrast, but this morning we're going to focus on some things that we're supposed to see that connect Because God, that's what God's trying to do here. He's trying to connect with Jonah and help Jonah to see the bigger picture. And so as we look at the plant and at Nineveh, what we see is that both are created. God causes this plant to grow, and when it dies, when it withers, he reminds Jonah, in the midst of Jonah's anger about that, hey, you didn't do anything to make this happen. Jonah didn't plant a seed, much less cause it to sprout and to grow. And yet God had done that. God had appointed this plant for this specific time, for this little window of history to come up and to sprout and to cover Jonah. In the same way, but on a much grander scale, God is making the point, I created these people, Jonah. These 120,000 people that live in this city, I made them. When God speaks of creating you in your mother's womb, He doesn't just speak of good people. He speaks of those that we would consider evil as well. He says, I made them, I put them together, I tied them together, I gave them life, I breathed it into their lungs. They have made it this far because of me. Don't know what how do you want me to look at them? How do you want me to respond to them? But it's not just that he created them, he also cared for them. This plant that God created, he didn't just make it sprout. This thing like grew over like overnight. I don't know what kind of miracle grow this stuff was on, but it was there. It sprouts and it covers Jonah in such a way that it provides relief. You'll notice in here, by the way, that, uh, and this is something that we're not going to spend a ton of time on and get tripped up on, but Jonah had built himself a shelter, and it says that he sat in the shelter, in the shade of the shelter for a time, okay? And then the shade of the plant takes over Jonah had tried to provide himself relief and what had happened? It had failed him. It lasted while the sun was here. The shade from the shelter was fine. But given time, the sun moves and Jonah's attempts at providing relief for himself fail. There's a word picture there as well. God provides relief from this plant and he cares for it. He makes it grow. He makes it produce these leaves and and cover. He gives it life. God, God again, it's I've cared for these people. It's not just that I've created them. It's not just that I've made them. I didn't just say, be born, and then I walked away and said, give it it your best go, I'm done. No, God has continued to supply them with what they need. He gives us the air in our lungs. He gives us food on our table The shelter over us. He walks with us through difficult things. He protects us from more than we could ever begin to imagine. He blesses us with more than we could ever begin to imagine. Jesus himself says that God sends the rain on evil and the just both. Even if you want to sit there and say, I don't need God. I don't want to follow God. I don't love God. In the here and now, he still says, but I love you and I created you, and I care for you. Jonah, how do you want me to see these people that I've created, that I've cared for, and then lastly, that have been corrupted? You'll notice that God appoints the plant to come and to grow and to cover Jonah, and then God appoints a worm So that it might attack the plant. And the plant withers and dies. Jonah becomes. Exceedingly upset by that truth. That no longer does he have this shade. This thing that. That was giving him relief. Now it's gone. God's trying to draw a connection here. As well. Not just that he created. Not just that he cares for. But that. God's creation has been corrupted. God's creation has been corrupted. This worm comes and it eats and it kills the plant. In the same way, sin has come from Adam and Eve from the very beginning. Sin has come and it has corrupted humanity. God says at the end there of chapter four that the people of Assyria, the people of Nineveh didn't know their right hand from the left. That was a common phrase in the day to say that they were morally bankrupt. They didn't know right from wrong. They didn't know up from down. It doesn't make them any less innocent or any more innocent. It doesn't make them less guilty, so to speak. They still have consequences. They're still responsible for the things that they do, but understand that they were corrupted from the beginning and they are Dying. Their sin is killing them. That was the whole word of warning in chapter 3. If you don't stop going this di- direction, destruction is there. Turn and find life. God looks at Jonah and he's pleading with Jonah. God, God just lays it out. Jonah, how do you want me to look at these people? I created them. I have cared for them and now they have been corrupted by sin and I want nothing more than to save them. I want nothing more than them to have life. And yet you're angry about it. You're angry about it. The crazy thing about all of this is Jonah knows the character of God. God is reminding Jonah of these things, but it's not a surprise to him. Going again back up to the top of the chapter, it says, For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. By the way, this is a quotation, a partial quotation, of God's description of himself out of Exodus. When he was dealing with the people of Israel, Jonah knew this about God. He knew of his grace and of his mercy. He knew of his patience. He knew of his grace and forgiveness. And yet he was angry about it. He was angry when it was shown to someone else other than him and his loved ones. So God is reminding him of of his character. He says, I've created these people, I've cared for these people, these people are corrupted, but I love them. I love them. Because of all of these things, I have compassion upon them. John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved his people. It doesn't say, for he so loved the good. It doesn't say, for he so loved those that loved him back. It says, for he loved the world. He looks at humanity, all of us, every individual, and he looks and he says, I created you. I have cared for you and you have been corrupted, but I am pursuing you. I want you. Not only does he love people, but he's patient with people. We know this about him. We know that he loves us. We know that he is patient with us. We read a passage out of 1 Peter earlier where God through the hand of Peter says, I am patient desiring that no one should perish. I have no doubt that if we were to go up to uh, uh, individuals in this crowd and say, do you know that God is patient with you? (laughs) Have you experienced God's patience? I believe many of us would say, oh yeah. Oh yeah, I know he's patient. (laughs) I know he's patient. Your pastor would say, oh yeah, I know he's patient. Now there comes a time when he's like, okay, enough's enough but he's patient. We fail in the same ways over and over and over again, but he is patient. We run away from him. We run away from his commands, but he is patient. We live life our own way thinking that we know better, and he is patient. And so he is towards others as well patiently waiting for them to come home. God loves people. God is patient with people. And God is gracious towards people. Grace is a word that we throw a lot around a lot in a church. But it just simply means unmerited favor, unearned favor, something that you don't deserve. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a better understanding of grace than anyone. Because you understand the depths of your sin and are still probably understanding the depths of your sin and understanding that you deserved, you deserved a consequence. You deserved death, you deserved destruction. But instead, God saved you. And he gave you life and life abundantly, and he's given you the promise of heaven. Nothing that you had earned, nothing that you had deserved. And yes, there are those that would look upon that and say that is unfair and that is unjust. And in some ways, I would look at those people and say, absolutely, praise God that it is unfair. But it is not unjust. You see, he poured out his justice upon Jesus Christ. The cross is where God's justice and God's grace come together that he took your penalty and my penalty and the penalty of all sinners and he poured them out upon Jesus Christ who willingly went to the cross that he may take it so that he may say, your penalty has been paid. And guess what? That was not just true for us. It was also true for the people of Nineveh. Jonah knew this, but he didn't know this. He didn't desire it for them. Throughout this sermon series, if you've been taking notes or or been paying attention, you'll notice that all of the titles for the notes are Jonah and. Jonah and God's mercy, Jonah and God's salvation, Jonah and God's message, Jonah and God's discipline, so on and so forth. But as we come to an end of Jonah... It's Jonah and us. Jonah and us. One of the things that drives us crazy about chapter 4 is that it ends on a cliffhanger. We don't get to know what happens to Jonah. And it drives us bonkers because we feel entitled to closure. But God had this account written down and he gives us this book and God is not concerned whether you know what happened to Jonah. God knows what happened to Jonah. God knows how Jonah responds. God doesn't need to know that. He already does, and he already did. Jonah doesn't need you to know how Jonah responds. But what God is interested in is how you are going to respond. He didn't write all this down. None of this came to light. Just so you could read it and go, well, that's really nice. I'm glad that wrapped up in a tiny little bow. Now God writes all of this down because there's an expectation in him communicating with you that you will respond. God is not not interested in you knowing what happened to Jonah. God is interested in knowing what happens to you. So three questions as we close out this book, three questions that, that we need to struggle with, three questions that we need to wrestle with this week, that I pray that you don't let these three questions go in one ear and out the other, but that God uses these questions to dare I say haunt you this week. Because we need to know the answers to this. More than we need to know the answers to how Jonah responded. We need to know how we will respond. Question one. Is our view of grace selfish? Is our view of grace selfish? We desire for grace to be extended to us. We desire for grace to be extended to our children and our grandchildren. We desire grace to be extended to those that we love. So that they would know hope so that they would know heaven so that they would know goodness of God but is that the extent of our desire for grace do we desire it for others including those that we would look at and say they don't deserve it is our view of grace selfish is our demand for justice and fairness self-serving is it self-serving I am the first to say that when I do something wrong, I hope that there is mercy. (laughs) I hope that there is grace. I hope that nothing is fair when I screw up. But do I have that same hope when, when I am not the one doing the wrong, but rather I am the one that has been wronged? When I have been wronged, when somebody else has made the mistake or someone else has taken the deliberate action against me, do I desire grace then? Do I desire fairness then? I'm not saying justice is wrong. We should love justice. We should pursue justice. But we must ask if we are pursuing it so that we may be satisfied What is our motive for that? Or is it just so that we can serve ourselves? And then lastly, is our compassion for others a reflection of Christ? Is our compassion for others a reflection of Christ? Jesus comes and he looks at people. When you read through the Gospels, you cannot help but see Jesus look at people And see them as created and cared for and corrupted. And desiring to heal. Desiring for there to be grace. Desiring for them to be forgiven. And man, it attracts some of the craziest people. It attracts the tax collector who had spent his whole adult life robbing from others to gain wealth and prestige. It attracts this rich, spoiled kid that is addicted to his possessions. It attracts the adulterer. It, ac- it attracts the, the one who is lived with many different people. It attracts the one who is a rebellious soul. It attracts some strange people. And God shows them grace. Grace. He doesn't say, keep living the way you're living, it's all okay. He doesn't say that. But he says, come follow me. Come follow me. This morning, do you look like that? Does your life attract strange people? Because they know that, you're, that you desire what's best for them, that you desire life for them. Or are you, Jonah, sitting on a hill, waiting to see what will happen to them? Not wishing for their good, wishing for their destruction. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. These are hard questions. These are hard things to ponder because they require us to be honest about our own hearts and our own actions. They require us to not look like ourselves either. We are corrupted. We are selfish. We desire our way over all other things. And these questions require us to say, it's not about me. The Lord has given us this book. He has given us this word that we may explore ourselves through his lens. And so I pray this moment, this moment that you would just respond. Maybe you need to sing. That's great. Maybe you need to come to the altar and just ask him to forgive you and give you a heart for people. Maybe you need to go find somebody Maybe you're here this morning you're like, I don't have a relationship with him, but I want life. I want somebody that's going to love me unconditionally. That sounds pretty good. Come talk to somebody. We'd love to tell you how you can do just that. Let us respond. Let me pray. Father, we come before you, and Father, this is a hard word. There's no way around it. Lord, that at times we ourselves have been Jonah, that we don't desire to speak a word of grace, we don't desire to speak a word of mercy, a word of your love, because we have decided that they don't deserve it, because we have decided that it's not worth our time. Father, I pray that you would forgive us, that we would see every individual that we come into contact with as someone you have created, someone that you have cared for, someone that has, yes, been corrupted and is in need of grace. Father, do a work in our hearts first. We pray this in your name. Amen.